This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. This is going to be sort of a, a demanding talk in some ways. It doesn't start off too technical. It gets a little bit more technical as, as we move along. My, my suggestion is in the, all along the way, though, there are going to be things that are probably going to send off questions in your mind. And, and, and so, uh, but one sort of section kind of builds on the other. So if you can kind of just uh, uh, keep with me, it'll help. Otherwise, a few sections down the way, you'll be lost. So maybe jot down a quick question if you have one, and, and we can come to that in the Q&A part. Um, all right. Well, um, let me, I thought I would begin by asking, I mean, I know this is a, a sort of an ecumenical group, an ecumenical uh, campus, but can I just see a, a show of hands uh, if, for, if you're Catholic? Okay, and you'll see why I'm asking that in a second. Okay, um, so now uh, for those Catholics, um, a show of hands if you have ever heard uh, the topic of predestination addressed in a homily. <laughs> I think there's a hand. There is actually one hand, which is, which I mean, more than maybe I was expecting. Uh, yeah, I neither have I. Uh, I I'm an adult convert to Catholicism uh, when I was a younger adult, um, uh, and um, I, I haven't ever heard uh, predestination brought up in a in a homily. Um, so, how many of you? Uh, for the Catholics, how many of you have, if you if you think of predestination, do you think that that's something that Catholics believe in? All right, that that I think that would be better than average uh, if you were just asking a, a group of Catholics. So I, I teach at a Catholic university, uh, and even among some of my students are are seminarians, college seminarians. So they're presumably better catechized than 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 uh, than most by the. Time they get to college, and I and it's news to a lot of them. I I think that uh, that predestination is uh, is something Catholics believe in in, in some form or another. Um, uh, they're 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 sometimes surprised to find that out. Well, what we're going to talk about uh, uh, predestination here, and particularly predestination and free will uh, from a from a Catholic perspective. Um, there, I'll say just at the outset. I mean, they're they're maybe alternative ways you could think about it uh, as a Catholic, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present what I think are some of the essentials here and particularly questions related to uh, how you make sense of, of predestination uh, in connection and relationship uh, to free will. So let's just uh, dive in here. Um, so I, I want to begin just, I'm going to be talking about salvation or, or referring to it anyway. What, what do I mean by that? Uh, for our purposes, we can just think of it as, as the beatific vision. So uh, seeing God face to face, eternal union with God, um, which would completely fulfill us, our intellect, our will, the heart, every heart's desire, um, uh, the beatific vision. And I'm, I'm going to assume here uh, that the beatific vision is, is due to no creature by nature. God doesn't owe us the beatific vision simply in virtue of us uh, in virtue of creating us human beings. He doesn't owe it uh, uh, to us simply because uh, we're human, okay? So just some background assumptions. What do I mean by predestination? I, there are various ways you might see it defined. Um, 
But I, I'm going to define predestination as, as this proposition, okay? That a created person attains salvation, or said what that is, attains salvation if and only if God chooses that the person attain salvation. So a created person attains salvation if and only if God chooses that the person attain salvation. Now, I think the, if that's how you understand it, I think the central implication of the doctrine of predestination, and maybe really the, the genuine substance of the doctrine, is that not just the possibility of attaining salvation, not just the help of attaining salvation, but a person's actually attaining salvation is God's gift. And if that's right, I think that has some pretty significant implications, um, implications for our spiritual life. So this is not just uh, something of, of purely sort of metaphysical interest, though I'm interested in the metaphysics uh, of it. But it, it's something that has serious implications practically for our spiritual life. Um, uh, for, for one thing, I think it calls for a certain kind of prayer, uh, uh, a certain kind of per fervent prayer that, that praying for the attainment of our salvation and, and the salvation of our loved ones uh, becomes something that should be really central to our prayer life. Um, it's something we should pray for if, in fact, it is God's gift, not just to make it possible that we attain salvation and then kind of the ball is in our court, but that if the attaining of our salvation and the salvation of our loved ones is God's gift, uh, it's something we should certainly pray for. Uh, another implication is, is that we, we should be placing our hope uh, in a very significant way in God uh, if if salvation, the attainment of salvation is God's gift, right? Then we, we should place our hope and, and trust in God uh, for that gift. We might also think about an implication from the standpoint of uh, if, we, if we reach there from the, the company of, of heaven, uh, that, that, that uh, what an incredibly grateful place uh, that must be, not simply because God has made salvation possible for us, but that that we actually, uh, if we if we arrive there, that uh, that's something that he he is he's given to us. So, uh, uh, incredible picture of, of gratitude. Um, speaking to uh, to that first point about about prayer here, it's interesting uh, if you notice uh, what Saint Paul does right in in Romans ten, uh, first verse, right after those chapters eight and nine, where he seems to be setting out some account of predestination, the first thing he, he does is say, uh, brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, for his uh, fellow Israelites, my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And that fits, I think, uh, beautifully with the idea of predestination is, is God's gift and therefore something uh, that we should uh, pray for. Okay, so I want to talk some about support uh, for, for this doctrine of predestination as, as I've set it out here. Various, you know, famous classic places in scripture you can go to. I've, I've got one here that I'm, I'm sure most of you are familiar with. I won't even read it. You can just, you can look at it and register it where, so that we find predestination talked about and affirmed uh, in scripture. 
Um, it's it's part of the the doctrine of of the Catholic Church, and so I want to want to look at some uh, passages there. These are passages um, from uh, the Council of Trent, um, and well, let's let's just look at the the first one. So, uh, no one, so long as he lives in this mortal condition, ought to be so presumptuous about the hidden mystery of predestination as to determine with certainty that he is definitely among the number of the predestined. Now, what the, the point of this is to uh, challenge those who would presumptuously assume that they're among the predestined. But, but my point here is just that, that it's clear that the assumption is that, that there is predestination. Predestination is a thing, right? Or else it, it, this would be an odd uh, way to challenge what they want to challenge if they didn't think predestination thing, they would just say, well, I mean, you think you're presumptuous about predestination. There is no such thing as predestination. No, predestination is assumed here. Um, here's another passage. Um, the same is to be said, let's, in other words, the warning against presumption, the same is to be said of the gift of perseverance about which it is written, he endures, he who endures to the end will be saved. This gift can be had only from him who has the power to uphold him who stands that he may stand with perseverance and who can lift him who falls, right? So the gift of perseverance, it's a gift. It's something God and really God alone can give us. And it's something that if we have, we'll, we'll attain salvation, right? You've got the essentials, uh, of, I think, of, of predestination uh, as I'm using that that, that uh, term here uh, in, in that passage. So uh, it's part of, uh, of, of the doctrine of, of the church. Um, but here's something that, that you, you maybe, um, you, if you're, even if you're aware of all that, you, you may be less kind of aware, of aware of this, or at least I was at a certain point, how significant the doctrine actually seems to be in the prayer of the church. Because in the prayer of the church, uh, we, we pray, Catholics pray, that God will grant us the attainment of salvation. We, that's a, that's a, a prayer right at the center of the prayer of the church. And it's a prayer that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, except on the supposition that our attaining salvation is in God's hands, that are actually attaining it not just the possibility of our attaining it, not just the help that we might attain it, but our actually attaining it is in God's hands. Then it's something you pray for, and you, this is what you find the church uh, doing. And doing in, like, the, in the central prayer of the Mass, the Eucharistic prayer, right? So this is from Eucharistic prayer one. Therefore, Lord, we pray, graciously accept this oblation of our service, that of your whole family. Order our days in your peace and command that we be delivered from eternal damnation and counted among the flock of those you have chosen. Or uh, this is from Eucharistic prayer four. To all of us, your children, grant, O merciful Father, that we may enter into a heavenly inheritance with the blessed Virgin Mary, Mother of God, and with your apostles and saints in your kingdom. Give us this that we may wind up uh, in... In, uh, in heaven, um, you find it 
you find it all over the place, really. Um, this is this is not in the Eucharistic prayer, but the prayer after communion. You can find it in various prayers after communion, but this is from the Sunday octave of Easter. Look with kindness upon your people, O Lord, and grant, we pray, that those you were pleased to renew by eternal mysteries may attain in their flesh the incorruptible glory of the resurrection. Grant that, right? And you get something here. Uh, I won't read through it, but you can look at it from the, from the liturgy of the hours, right? So the liturgy of the church includes these prayers that God would give us. It seems not just the, the possibility or the help that we might attain salvation, but the actual attainment of it, right? Now, some of you may have heard this phrase uh, people will use sometimes, lex orandi, lex credendi, like the, the rule or the law of, of, uh, of prayer uh, is the rule of faith. I mean, there are various way, ways you can understand or determine it. But, but the basic idea is that um, if, you, if you look at the way the church prayer uh, prays, uh, that forms a kind of, of, of rule for belief it, it, uh, because the prayer reflects the belief, the belief, the creeds should reflect the prayer. And it seems like there's powerful reason from the, the prayer of the church to think that there's, uh, yeah, we believe, or at least we pray like we believe that our attainment of salvation is in God's hands. Okay, so um, there seems to be strong support for, for predestination here in the Catholic tradition. But of course, that's not the whole picture. Uh, things uh, get more complicated because there's also strong support for what I'm going to call responsibility or sometimes responsibility and reward uh, in the tradition. So what do I mean by responsibility? It's, that it's this, just this proposition that whether a person attains salvation depends on what that person does. So it's God's gift, but it also depends on what that person does. What, what sorts of things? Well, um, maybe various sorts of things, keeping the commandments, uh, good works, uh, repenting for our sins, uh, maybe just maybe believing, maybe all of these things are, are required. In fact, scripture seems to, su to suggest that they all are, are important. And so you have passages here, um, um, you know, what someone asks Jesus, what must I do to uh, attain eternal life? Keep the commandments, right? Jesus says, for the son of man is to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will repay everyone for what he has done. Um, St. Paul, right? In the next passage, he, he uh, the Lord God will repay uh, according to each one's deeds. The next two passages, um, right? Focusing here uh, less on, on, you know, keep the commandments, repaying for what you've done, for your deeds, but, but specifically repentance, right? Um, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. On the other hand, uh, Paul says, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. So what we do, what we do matters, right? right? We will be repaid for what we've done for our works, for keeping the commandments, for whether we repent or not, for whether we believe God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Right? 
Um, so what we do matters is the point. It's uh, our attaining salvation, on the one hand, is God's gift, but on the other hand, it seems to depend on what we do. Um, and the church, while upholding this, this idea that it, it, it's God's gift, also upholds the idea that it depends on what we do. So you can continue here with some passages from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that a justified man, however perfect he may be, is not bound to observe the commandments of God and of the church, but is bound only to believe as if the gospel were merely an absolute promise of eternal life without the condition that the commandments be observed, let him be anathema. If anyone says that for the good works performed in God, the just ought not to expect and hope for an eternal reward from God through his mercy and the merits of Jesus Christ, if they persevere to the end in doing good and in keeping the divine commandments, let him be anathema. So the good works, the keeping the commandments are, are necessary. And in fact, uh, we ought hope for an eternal reward for them. All right. Well, this... <laughs> What we've seen in the, these two sections raises a kind of problem or a puzzle, um, which could be put this way. Um, how, how in the world can it be God's choice whether we attain salvation, which is what predestination is affirming? How can that be God's choice whether we attain salvation if whether we attain salvation depends on what we do? How can it be up to us whether we attain salvation if whether we attain salvation is up to God? Do you see the force of that question? It should be up to one, <laughs> but how is it going to be up to, uh, to, to each or both? Um, that's a puzzle, right? Um, and I want, to I want to suggest what it seems to me to be the answer uh, of Scripture and of of tradition, the Catholic tradition, certainly on this, but, but which is just, it's going to raise further puzzles we'll, we're going to have to deal with. But, but, but before doing it, um, I think it's useful just to, we need some word for, you know, what the things we need to do to attain salvation. And we've looked at, it might be doing good works. It might be uh, repenting. It might be believing it, you know, it could be all of these things, right? But you need, we need some sort of placeholder um, we, we could, and the tradition often does, maybe just use the word merits for that. When we do something among those things that we need to do to attain salvation, we could call it merit. We could call it accepting the offer of salvation, right? But we're going to be talking about that generically, even though realizing that there's sort of maybe specific things that, that, that are needed there. Well, how do we solve this, this puzzle, right? Um, how can it be Right. God's choice, whether we attain salvation, if whether we attain salvation depends on what we do. How can that be? Well, I think the solution is this, uh, that that our merits or our accepting the offer of salvation is itself from God. It's God's gift. It's God. It's something God brings about in us. And thus, it is at once something God chooses for us and something we do. Now, again, that 
that solution is going to raise further questions and problems about free will that we're going to have to look at here. But but first, like, just consider some support for that that being the solution um, to reconciling predestination and responsibility. Lots of passages from Scripture that point in that direction. So from Ephesians here, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus and good works, which God has made ready beforehand that we may walk in them. Philippians, for it is God who of his good pleasure works in you both the will and the performance. From Ezekiel, I, God, will cause you to walk in my commandments. I will cause you to walk in my commandments and to keep my judgments and to do them. So I think there's scriptural support for that, that picture. The things that we are, are told we need to do in order to attain salvation, that we need to do, are things that uh, God brings about in us, right, through his, uh, through his grace. And the prayer of the church, right, seems uh, to uh, also support this idea. So we, we pray to God uh, that we merit salvation, that we do those things, right, needed to attain salvation. And again, that's a prayer that makes sense only if God can give us or bring about our meriting, our doing those things, right? Other, it wouldn't make any sense to pray to God uh, for that we merit these things unless our meriting these things were in God's hands or God's gifts. So this is uh, from Eucharistic prayer uh, too. Um, for for non-Catholics, I mean, the Eucharistic prayer is like the, the central prayer of the mass, uh, and there, but there are various different versions of it. So we've looked at one and, and four, and here's a, a little bit from Eucharistic prayer too. Have mercy on us all, we pray, that with the blessed Virgin Mary, mother of God, with the blessed apostles, and all the saints who have pleased you throughout the ages, we may merit to be co-heirs to eternal life and may praise and glorify you through your son, Jesus Christ. So a, a similar prayer in a way for the attainment of salvation, but this time uh, through, <laughs> through the means of our and meriting are doing what is needed of to attain salvation and thereby to praise and glorify God with, with, the, uh, with the saints forever. I'm not going to read through, just to save time, this, this passage from St. Augustine, but you get a very similar uh, picture there, right? Whereby uh, he said, you know, the good life, the good things we do uh, uh, that would merit us uh, salvation are themselves God's gift, so that when salvation is granted as a reward, it's in a way God uh, crowning his own gifts, right? Or rewarding his own gifts. A, 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 a beautiful and, and striking passage. And I think this, this idea, this solution is, is one that you find in, in uh, the doctrine of, of the Catholic Church. So here are a couple of passages from the Second uh, Council of Orange, um, a council of the church that was responding to the Pelagian, semi-Pelagian um, heresy. It is a divine gift, both when we think rightly and when we restrain our feet from falsity and injustice, for as often as we do good, God operates in us and with us that we may work. And another from the same council, grace is not preceded by any merit. A reward is due 
to good works if they are performed. But grace, which is not due, proceeds that they may be done. And lots of, you know, I'm going to skip a couple of other passages here, which are, are great passages um, from the Council of Orange, but just, uh, just to save time, skip down to this next one from uh, the, the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the good works of the justified man are the gifts of God in such a way that they are not also the good merits of the justified man himself, or that by the good works he performs through the grace of God and the merits of Jesus Christ, the justified man does not truly merit an increase of grace, eternal life, and provided he dies in a state of grace, the attainment of this eternal life, as well as an increase of glory, let him be anathema. So it's, it's as if this passage is, is going out of the way to emphasize both that our good works, um, our merits, are they, they're genuinely, they genuinely merit eternal life. They genuinely merit a reward, right? But they're also genuinely God's gifts, right? Um, both of these things are, are affirmed, um, uh, here in the, in the teaching of the church. So it's, it's, a, it's a solution to what might seem an initial tension between predestination, right, uh, that our attaining salvation is a gift, and we attain it if and only if God uh, chooses it for us, and that it depends on what we do. And the way you resolve those is to say, well, those things that we do as needed to attain salvation are also God's gifts, our merits are God's gifts, um, is this, again, this, this last uh, passage from the Council of Trent that I, I won't read, uh, emphasizes. Okay, well, um, I think that that works in terms of, uh, you know, sorting out how you resolve the, 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 that, that apparent tension, but it raises another one, which is the, the main focus here, which is how, you, how all this is supposed to work with, with free will. All right. Are you with me so far? Are we good? Okay. All right. It seems to me that, that two theses follow from what we were just saying in the previous section of this presentation regarding how to reconcile predestination and responsibility. The first thesis, call it T1, is that I have the ability to do what's needed to attain salvation only if God gives the needed grace. And the second thesis, we call it T2, is that my doing what's needed to attain salvation, my doing what's needed, is God's gift. It's something brought about in us by God, in me by God. So there, there are two theses here. Now I want to talk about a little bit about what might be, we might think of as requirements for making sense of human freedom and for making sense of moral responsibility, our moral responsibility for what we do. Um, and then we'll see that there's some, there's, there's some tension between these two theses, which follow, right, from what we've said, and, and these requirements for, for freedom and, and moral responsibility. So uh, for requirements for free action, um, you might think, so R1 says, I'm not free to perform Act A if I don't have the ability to perform Act A. 
how could I possibly be free <laughs> to do something that I don't have the ability to do, right? That seems intuitive to, to, to me anyway and to many people. Consider this other requirement, requirement two. I do not freely perform A if I could not have done otherwise than perform A. So if I, if I do A but I couldn't have done otherwise, then we might wonder whether I was free to perform it. I think that's pretty intuitive to a lot of people as well. I, I actually think that probably needs some qualification, uh, uh, but I'm not, which we don't have time for. But so let's just leave that there. Um, I do not freely perform A if I could not have done otherwise than do it. And uh, another requirement one might think uh, uh, regarding freedom: I do not freely perform A if my performing A is not ultimately up to me. If it wasn't ultimately up to me. Certainly, if it wasn't within my control that I do A, it's hard to see that I was free to do it. Well, let's then add some, just some points that kind of piggyback on these three initial ones about, about moral responsibility. Like when we, and there's when, when we actually deserve praise or blame uh, for what we do or what we fail to do, right? Moral responsibility. R4 suggests that I'm, I'm not morally responsible or blameworthy for failing to perform A if I was not free to perform it. If I wasn't free to do it, then how could I be morally responsible for doing it? And R5 says I'm not morally responsible for or deserving of reward uh, for performing A if I do not freely perform it. So the basic idea here is that wh whether we can deserve praise or blame whether we really bear genuine responsibility for what we do requires that they be free, right? That those, so what, whatever would take away freedom in, in what we do seems to take away moral responsibility as well. Well, if you look at those two theses, the these T1 and T2, which I think just follow from what we were saying when we were trying to reconcile predestination and responsibility, and they seem to kind of follow from the teaching of the church and the tradition and scripture, as, as far as I can tell. You take those T1 and T2, those two theses, and then you take what we've just said about uh, freedom, the requirements for freedom and moral responsibility, and there seems to be a, 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 at least a tension, if not a, a contradiction there. Um, so we'll talk about two problems. We'll call them P1 and, and P2. The first problem, P1, from, from the thesis one, T1, and from the first requirement, R1, it looks like I'm not free to do what's needed to attain salvation unless God gives me the grace to do so. In such a case, it follows further from requirement four having to do with moral responsibility that I would not be morally responsible or blameworthy for failing to do so. I'm not, I'm not, I can't be held responsible. I can't be blamed for failing to do what's needed to attain salvation if God hasn't given me the grace to do what's needed to attain salvation. P2 is a little different, right? The second problem. Suppose as the second thesis, right, uh, says, suppose God brings about my doing what's needed to attain salvation, gives it to me. He gives that merit to me, what I need to do to attain salvation. Well, in that case, 
it may seem that I could not have done otherwise than do that thing. And that my doing that thing is ultimately up to God and not up to me. But then, given these requirements for free will and and responsibility, my doing what's needed to attain salvation would not be free. And so I would not be morally responsible or deserving of reward for doing it. So what we need to kind of reconcile predestination and responsibility uh, seems to run into problems for making sense of, of free will and our ability to be praised or blamed for what we do or fail to do in this area. Okay. So I just want to, having raised the, the, the difficulty or the tension, want to show that, well, the, Catholic Church clearly wants to affirm free will, right? So it would, it would see these as problems. If it wants to affirm, affirm thesis one and thesis two, right? It also wants to have, lead to these seeming problems for free will. It wants to affirm free will as, as well, right? And so we're going to need some further solution here, right, to help reconcile all this stuff. So if you look at this passage, uh, this is, again, from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the free will of man moved and awakened by God, in no way cooperates by an assent to God's awakening call through which he disposes and prepares himself to obtain the grace of justification, and that man cannot refuse his assent if he wishes, but that like a lifeless object, he does nothing at all and is merely passive, let him be anathema. Um, And then you can skip down to skip this next one, Uh, those who through their sins were turned away from God, awakened and assisted by his grace, are disposed to turn to their own justification by freely assenting to and cooperating with that grace. In this way, God touches the heart of man with the illumination of the Holy Spirit, but man himself is not entirely inactive while receiving that inspiration since he can reject it. And yet without God's grace, he cannot, by his own free will, move towards justice in God's sight. And then finally, from the Catechism uh, of the Catholic Church, when God establishes his, his plan of predestination, he includes in it each person's free response to his grace. So predestination and, and freedom can't be at odds here, uh, uh, at least on the Catholic view, but how, the, how you can reconcile these things, predestination, responsibility, and, and genuine free will, is then a puzzle, okay? So what I want to do now is, is um, suggest um, uh, a solution. Okay, well, I, resolving P1, I think, is, the, is uh, the, that first problem, I think, is, is easier <laughs> than resolving uh, the, the second problem. Um, and... The, the proposed solution for resolving the, the first problem is to say that God gives all people uh, grace antecedent or p- prior to the occasions, occasion, occasions when they have the opportunity to do what's needed to attain salvation. And in doing so, uh, this, this grace, this antecedent grace enables, gives the ability gives everybody the ability to do what's needed to attain salvation. So they have the ability to do it, are free to do it, and are morally responsible 
and blameworthy if they do not. Uh, this sort of, of enabling grace, this antecedent grace that enables us to do what's needed is sometimes called sufficient grace. Uh, it's sometimes uh, called prevenient grace. If you've, ever, if you've heard these terms, you can make connections there. Now, I think that, I think that helps. I think that solves uh, problem one. But I don't think it solves this appeal to antecedent grace is going to solve problem two. It doesn't seem to, in my view. Others, including other Catholics, would disagree with this point, I, I think, perhaps. But, but so a little bit about why I think antecedent grace doesn't solve uh, problem two. Now, to simplify this, let's, um, let's suppose an act, just call it A, capital A, um, Let's suppose that is my act of doing what's needed to attain salvation. And I, I'm simplifying matters. I, I don't want to say, you know, I, I realize it may be an open question whether this is like a, one single act I've got to do to attain salvation or many, right? But I'm, I'm just trying to, to, to simplify matters for the, for the sake of the problem. So let A be my act of doing that, right? Well, can antecedent grace solve the problem too that we were looking at? Well, look, um, Either uh, the antecedent grace that God gives leaves open the possibility that I not perform A, or the antecedent grace God gives does not leave open the possibility that I perform A, but rather uh, necessitates that I perform it. Well, suppose we go with the first option that the antecedent grace uh, God gives leaves open the possibility that I not perform A. In that case, then it seems that in giving that antecedent grace, God will not really have brought about A or given me the performance of A. Since I might lack the performance of A, even though I was given the antecedent grace. Like if God gives the antecedent grace and A doesn't come along with it, it doesn't seem like he's given me A, right? Or brought about A and giving that antecedent grace. But we need a solution where God actually gives me, right? The, the, uh, the meritorious act A, right? So antecedent grace doesn't seem to work if we think of that antecedent grace as leaving open the possibility that I not perform A. On the other hand, what if we go with, with the, that second option, B, if the antecedent grace God gives uh, does not leave open the possibility that I not perform A, but rather necessitates that I perform A, well, in that case, all, I, although I would think God would have brought about A in that situation where the antecedent grace doesn't leave open the possibility that I not do A, I think God would have brought about A but then, it, but I don't think I would have performed A freely. It doesn't seem like I would have performed A freely in such a case. And therefore, uh, we're left in this dilemma, the, uh, either in giving the antecedent grace, either God will not really have brought about A or given me A, or I will not have performed A freely. Well, what we need is, a, is you know, to hold all this together we need God having giving me a giving me that meritorious act, uh, and my doing it freely, right? But it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do that just with with the antecedent grace. 
sufficient grace, provenient grace, um, whatever we want to call it. And if that's right, then the foregoing argument shows that we can't solve the problem of predestination and free will by antecedent grace alone. We're going to need something uh, more than antecedent grace. Well, let's think a little bit uh, further about what more is needed uh, here, okay? And, and this is to think a little bit more about the sorts of things, the kind of situation that might rule out or preclude or undermine free will, okay? What sort of situation might rule out or preclude or undermine free will? Well, one might think that an agent's freely performing an act is undermined or precluded if there are factors that have these characteristics, you might say, that, that are prior to the agent's act, right? There's some factor prior to the agent's act that is outside the agent's control and from which the agent's act simply follows. Got a factor that's, that's prior to my act, is totally outside my control, and my act simply follows from that prior factor. I think if you've got a situation like that, uh, and, uh, you've got a kind of scheme, a generic scheme uh, of the situation where free will would be precluded. Um, you might call this a deterministic scheme if you want to use the word determinism, which I don't actually have here on the, on the handout, but this is the sort of thing people have in mind when they talk about determinism, when they're talking about free will and determinism. This would seem to be a kind of determinism. So if you let, if you let A again be my act, let F be any prior factor, could be anything really, an entity, a state of affairs, whatever. If you let X arrow Y stand for the idea that, that Y simply follows from X. In other words, that it's not possible that X occur without Y's occurring. And if you let OC bracket X stand for the idea that X obtains and it's outside my control that X obtains. Okay, you can see how this plays out, right? You imagine, again, there's some factor like the, at one here, there's kind of a little argument. At one, you imagine some factor outside my control and then you imagine that it's, it's really outside my control that my act A follows from this factor. It, 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 this factor obtains and my act follows from it and all that's outside my control. It's well, in that situation, it's really hard to see how that my act could be in my control. It looks like my act is gonna be outside my control as well. But if my act is outside my control, can it possibly be free? Uh, doesn't seem like it could be. Doesn't seem like it could be free. Doesn't seem like it could be up to me. So, you know, we therefore it doesn't seem to be something that I could be morally responsible for in the sense of something that I would deserve any sort of reward for, could be blamed, that sort of thing. All right. Now, I, I think uh, there's, this, there's a sense in which that just antecedent grace would leave us, uh, could leave us stuck in that sort of situation, depending on how we're thinking of it. Um, if we, if we uh, assume that I don't have any control over antecedent grace, over whether God gives that antecedent grace, then his bringing about my act A by means of antecedent grace would introduce a prior factor that's outside my control. And so a, a prior factor that would undermine uh, my acting freely. That, that, that was in effect the problem if we went with option B and that dilemma that we just looked at. Um, on the previous page. 
op going with option B in a, in a sense is an, is an instance of this scheme that would preclude free will. All right, so what we need is a way to, to, to solve that second, uh, that second problem uh, for free will. What we really need is a way for God to bring about A consistent with my freely performing A. How in the world can we do that? How can that, how can that be? Well, I want to, I think it's going to depend ultimately a lot on how we think about God's agency. What it is for God, God to bring about an act. What is involved when he brings about some uh, creaturely effect, including like one of our acts? What's involved there? And I actually think that there, there, on a lot of sort of popular ways of thinking about what's involved there in God's agency, God's bringing about some uh, effect or bringing about my act would introduce a factor that is prior to my act, explanatorily prior to it, that's outside my control and from which my act simply follows. And therefore, were God on these ways of thinking about divine agency, were God to bring about my my act, it seems like it wouldn't be free, um, wouldn't, wouldn't be up to me, wouldn't be within my control. So I have on, on your page uh, nine, a couple of different models, um, the prior divine decree model, the prior divine act model. And you look at, at, at what these models involve, they, they each involve some prior factor over which I have no control from which my act simply follows. In the, in the prior divine decree model, there is, we think of, of God, I'm letting the, the triangle of Trinitarian, being Trinitarian here, stand for God. And we, we think of, of then there being, a, say, God's choice or decree to bring about some effect. Let's call it E, any effect. Or we could talk about it in terms of my act A. There's some choice or decree to bring it about. And that choice or decree is explanatorily prior to my acts coming about or the effects coming about. And I don't have any control over it, right? And it, and it looks like my act simply follows from it. So if that's how we think about God's agency, it looks like uh, there's this thing. I have no control over God's decree, God's choice. My act simply follows from it. It doesn't look like my act is up to me. It doesn't look like I'd have the ability to do otherwise, given prior conditions. Given that prior condition of God's choice or decree to bring about my act. It doesn't look like I could have done anything else. Um, and it, yeah, it, it looks like it, it precludes freedom. The prior divine act model, similar sort of thing. If you think of, of God's act of bringing about some effect, including my act, if you think of that as being something that is explanatorily prior to my act, it looks like it's going to be outside my control it's going to be prior. My act's simply going to follow from it. It doesn't look like my act is, is free. Okay. Um, now, this is, you know, we're now well into the part of the paper that gets a little more technical. And, and in, in some ways, I, I, I probably have to move through this more quickly than ideal. There, there's a model of divine agency that, that I like uh, and have tried to propose in, in some work that I've done that I think um, avoids uh, this, this problem uh, of God's bringing about my act or bringing about some effect, introducing something that is explanatorily prior 
outside my control from which my act simply follows. Um, I call it uh, the, the extrinsic model of divine uh, agency. And if you look at that model on, on page 10, it thinks of God's um, bringing about some effect E or even, and also his, his choosing or decreeing. In the end, it thinks of those as really the same thing in the end. God's bringing about E and God's choosing or decreeing E is the same thing. And it thinks of that as consisting in the effect E together with it, a relation of, of dependence on God. The inspiration for this is by just incidentally some things that St. Thomas Aquinas says. Um, St. Thomas will sometimes ask what, what creation is. Uh, and he'll say creation is, is the creature with a relationship of dependence on God. Where I got the idea for, for, for this. Um, there's more to say, and I won't have time to go into it all. But, but the, the key thing here is that if God's act of bringing about some effect, including like my act A, if that just consists in A or the effect with its relation to dependence on God, then God's act of bringing about or his choice of, of my act A is not prior to A because it can't be prior to it since it has, as it were, A as a constituent, right? What that divine act consists in is A with the relation of dependence on God. And so if it consists, it has A as one of its constituents, it, 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 God's decree, God's choice, God's act of bring about A can't be prior to it. And if it can't be prior to it, then it, it's, not, uh, it's not a prior factor outside my control from which my act simply follows. In fact, if we kind of left God out of the picture for a, a moment and asked whether or not A, you know, whether I could have done otherwise than A, uh, all prior conditions remaining the same, adding that God caused A wouldn't change that. If, I, if, if leaving God outside the picture, we say, I, all, con, all prior conditions remaining the same, I could have done otherwise than A. And now we add God caused A. We, add, we affirm that God caused A on this model. Because God's causing A doesn't add any, more, any other prior condition, any other factor that's prior to my act, right? Uh, then if I had the ability to do otherwise, all prior conditions before, I still do, even though it turns out that God caused it. In fact, there's a way uh, it, it turns out that I even have some say over whether God brings about my act. Um, what, what I call a counterfactual power uh, over God's causing in my act. If you look under, right under the, the big square there, um, I have counterfactual power over God's causing my act. Since I could have done otherwise, all prior conditions remain the same. And had I done otherwise, God's act of causing my act would not have occurred. You may, you may be able to follow the details of this model and maybe not, but the takeaway from it is that on this model, uh, God's causing my act is not a prior factor over which I have no control from which my act simply follows. And on this model, I could do otherwise. God could cause my act and I could do otherwise. All prior conditions remain the same. Um, and I think that that, because it enables me to explain how God could bring about my meritorious act, could give that act to me without taking away my control, without making it such that I couldn't have done otherwise, it, it shows how you can reconcile freedom 
with this idea that our merits are God's gifts. And so what I want to do now is just kind of summarize this solution that I've, I've tried to present. And you can, you can follow along on page 11. So God gives antecedent grace, antecedent, call it, we call it sufficient grace, universally. And that enables all people to do what's needed to attain salvation. And call it, let's again use A for what's needed to attain salvation. All people, therefore, have the ability necessary for genuine freedom to perform A and to be blameworthy if they don't. And my hope, at any rate, is that that would solve that first problem, the easier, I think, of the two problems. Now, this antecedent sufficient grace that God gives, it leaves open the possibility that a person not do A. Thus, the antecedent sufficient grace does not introduce a prior factor outside my control from which my doing A simply follows. It enables me to do A, but it doesn't necessitate my doing A, is the point. Okay, that solves P1, it doesn't solve P2. To solve P2, we, I think, need the extrinsic model of divine agency. If we adopt that model, we have an account of divine agency on which God can cause A, a meritorious act, without introducing a prior factor from which A simply follows, and without removing the person's ability to do have done otherwise than A. And this point uh, solves the second problem, problem two, showing how A can be a gift brought about by God without taking away freedom. Given the extrinsic model, it turns out A is ultimately up to me, right? It really, my act, my meritorious act is ultimately up to me as well as God. It's ultimately up to both. Now, we can call this act by which God causes A, this my meritorious act A, we can call God's causing my meritorious act A, we can call it concurrent grace. I've talked about antecedent grace before. We can call this concurrent grace since it's a gift of God that occurs not really antecedent to my performing A, like the antecedent grace does, but it occurs simultaneously. It occurs simultaneously or concurrently with my performing A. So I, I define predestination as God's choice that, that someone, that a person, a created person attain salvation, right? Well, what, what, what does that come to on this picture? Um, you could say that God's choice that a person attain salvation, predestination, it consists in such an act of concurrent grace whereby God brings about A, my meritorious act, in order that the person attain salvation. God's choice that a person attain salvation is this concurrent act whereby he brings about A in order that a person attain salvation. Now, since God's choice that a per person attain salvation is simply his bringing about A, and since God's bringing about A does not introduce a factor prior to A, Neither does predestination introduce a factor prior to A. And so God's choice that a person attains salvation does not preclude, does not rule out A's being done freely. In such a case, the person's attaining salvation is up to God and is God's gift, but it's also up to the person who freely does what's needed to attain salvation. 
Since A is up to both God and the person, we could say that the person's attaining salvation is also up to both God and the person. It's up to God that I attain salvation. It's God's gift. It's also up to me insofar as given that antecedent grace has been given, I also have to do what's needed and do it freely, right, in order to attain salvation. And so we might say attaining salvation is, is up to, to both of us. We might say it has dual sources. All right. I want to close um, just by finishing with what I take to be essential elements of a Catholic account of predestination, elements which I think that this account that, that I've proposed uh, satisfy, although you know, they're Catholics that would have the different details here and there about it. But I just I want to hit this. And then um, maybe we could stop and do Q&A at that point. I could talk some about some of these alternative Catholic views if it comes up in Q&A. But, so I think essential elements, well, of any account is that it actually preserves predestination, right? You actually want to preserve the idea uh, that a person attains salvation if and only if God chooses that the person attain it. Okay? If it fails to do that, it seems to me it hasn't done what, what it's, what's needed. I think it's got to preserve responsibility as defined earlier on in the paper, that whether a person attains salvation depends on what that person does, right? It's got to preserve both predestination and responsibility. We had a solution to that. Well, the person's doing what's needed is, is itself a gift of God brought about by God. That lead, led to the trouble with free will, right? Well, if it's brought about by God, how could we be free in doing it? Well, an essential element is that it preserves free will too, right? So we are free and we're morally responsible in whether we do what's needed to attain salvation. And I've presented an account that tries to, to preserve that. A couple of other things just to, to talk about uh, briefly that I think are essential elements uh, in the Catholic view. One, uh, another is that it, it preserves God's universal salvific will is the way people often put it. Um, in other words, uh, that, that God, in some real uh, sen significant sense, desires that everyone uh, be saved. And you, there's, of course, scriptural support from that. This is from 1 Timothy. God desires everyone to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. Now, there are various ways that might be expressed on the account I propose. But, but one way is, is in God's giving, in antecedent sufficient grace to all people. Right, it's an expression of His will uh, for for their uh, salvation, um, and and finally, I, I think an essential element for uh, a Catholic account of, of predestination is that it avoids what is sometimes called uh, double predestination or or predestination to sin and hell. Um, so, uh, people are predestined to to glory to the attainment of salvation. But there, there's not uh, a divine act predestining people uh, to, to, to damnation, to sin, to hell. You, you see this um, point made in the catechism. Um, God predestines no one to go to hell. For this, a willful turning away from God, a mortal sin is necessary and persistence in it until the end. And then something similar from the Council of Trent. If anyone says that the grace of justification is given only to those who are predestined to life and that all the others who are called are called indeed, but do not receive grace as they are predestined to evil by the divine power, let him be anathema. 
Okay. All right. So I think, I, you know, because I, I want to give plenty of time for discussion. Um, so I think I'll stop there. You know, there is another section where I consider some alternative uh, Catholic uh, approaches to predestination. And, and I'm certainly happy to talk about that if people want to, but, but maybe let you all lead more what we, what we talk about at this point. So thank you. I see first. Uh, yeah, first of all, thank you so much for your talk. That was, that was fantastic. Um, thank you. I was, I was curious about um, the assumption you made at the beginning that God does not owe the beatific vision to yeah. any creature he creates. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you could comment on, like, maybe, maybe we don't have a right to the, the beatific vision, but do we have a right prior to any actions we've taken not to be, like, damned, I guess? Yeah. So, for instance, like, if um, if hell is just alienation from God, yeah. does God have like the right to totally alienate Himself from us? Or like if God if God withheld sufficient grace from someone, yeah. would that be doing an injustice to them? Yeah, yeah, those are good good questions. Yeah, um, what I'm what I'm thinking of. So I mean, let me just begin a little about what I'm thinking. I'm thinking of this here. You know, God, God might have created human beings without creating them in a, in a state of grace ordered towards the beatific vision. At least I, I think that. Um, so that the, the fact that he gives grace ordered towards supernatural, that's one of the reasons why we might call it supernatural, supernatural beatitude with him, is itself a gift kind of right off the, the, the start. It's not, it's not a, the beatific vision is not owed to any human, human being. Uh, now, there's a sense in which Given that grace and given certain meritorious actions, it might be owed, but that's only subsequent to grace. But you're asking, I think maybe your main concern is this, well, what about um, damnation, right? Or what, what's the, what, what are the alternatives? If, if it's not salvation, what is it, right? Um, and there, um, I mean, I would be inclined to say if what we're thinking of is a, is a, hell understood as a, a kind of state of, of punishment, right? I think there, um, and not, you know, because there's, there's this other kind of idea of like what might have happened, right? Which is uh, human beings, maybe they, maybe they just cease to exist after their life altogether, or maybe they live in a state of natural, some kind of natural happiness that falls, but, but is something short of the beatific union with God, beatific vision. But if we're talking about punishment, it seems to me I'm thinking some responsibility, right? Some culpability uh, is would be required there, in, in my view. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Does that answer your question? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the only thing, other thing I was wondering about was um, on the, the sufficient grace question as like a, as a precondition to um, like not be damned, I guess, or to, to like merit anything good. Um, it seems like you said that God offers sufficient grace to like all of his, like all human beings at least. Yeah. Um, is that something God, is that something God has to do? Would he, yeah. If he chose not to give sufficient grace to someone, would that be an injustice to them? Even if yeah. they ended up going to hell because yeah. of that? Uh, that's, that's a great question. <laughs> um, and a question I think on which there is, there, there is some you know, dispute in the tradition about how to answer it. 
frankly. Um, it seems if, if a person cannot do any good of a sort that would enable them at least to escape the punishment of hell, right, without sufficient grace, it's, it's hard for me to see how they could be deserving of hell, you know, if it was literally impossible for them to do it. Um, maybe they inherited a, a, a state where they're impossible to do it from the sin of, you know, of Adam, Eve. But there, that looks like that's Adam and Eve's that are, are personally responsible for that. And it doesn't seem to me that, so it's a, it's a lot easier for me to, to see how this works if God, and I think a lot of others think, agree, if God provides some ability for all people to have some personal responsibility in a, in a choice for or against God. But I, I mean, I, I don't think I'm, I'm not even sure that, uh, I think most Catholics probably hold that, but I don't know that they're bound to hold that actually by, by Catholic doctrine, although that's a tricky question from what I can tell. Um, did you have your hand or? And then there was a hand back here. You didn't have it. Okay. All right. Sorry. Yeah. Yes. Uh, thank you, Dr. There are a lot of aspects to the view that, uh, if you pardon me, pun have merit to them. <laughs> but uh, I'm wondering, yeah. So no, that's good. I like that. I like um, I like I like cheesy philosophy uh, jokes. Yeah. Keep them coming. How uh, divine providence, not just for knowledge, yeah. but providence might be accommodated on the extrinsic model. Yeah. Because um, one could say that and. Correct me if this is not a fair characterization, but part of how the extrinsic model reconciles uh, our intuitions about freedom with God's divine agencies. Yeah. Um, that whatever I end up doing ends up being what God has yeah. done, you know, his act. Yep. Um, but then it's difficult to see how what people end up doing could have been brought about as part of God's providential plan. And just to put a point on this, yeah. um, if I'm praying for someone that they attain salvation or that those who are currently in a state of grace continue to the end and attain salvation, mm -hmm. how is my prayer supposed to make any difference to them? Because it seems like, well, whatever they end up doing, um, let's say they, they do make the choice. Yeah. Well, then that's God's act, and if they yeah. don't, then God didn't yeah. do that. Um, so how does my praying for them exert any kind of influence on whether they end up making that choice or not? Yeah. Unless you introduce a prior factor. Uh huh. Um, in which case, then I'm worried about. Yeah. The, our yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So good. A lot, lots, lots of good questions there. First, let me just say, I, I think I want to affirm the, the need for all this to come under providence. So, um, so I, I want to hold that for sure. Um, uh, let, me, let me say 
a, a little bit about Providence, the way I think of Providence. I mean, when you look at when you look at St. Thomas uh, Aquinas and w- what the reasons he gives for thinking that God uh, is has providence, you know, that the whole world is or in the course of history is in His hands. Uh, the reason he gives for it is that God is the universal cause of all that exists apart from Himself. Um, now. I would want to combine that idea with the, the extrinsic model and say, well, God, God is bringing about all, you know, that, that happens over the course of, of history. Uh, and therefore, he's, he has providence over it. Um, and that is inclusive even of our, of our free actions. Now, so I'm going to say that. I think you're, you're, you're right that on this extrinsic model, like God's act of causing, say, my act A and my act A, those are two separate things, God's act of causing A and, and my act A. But they go together, right? So that it, it's not possible for God to, to cause my act A and my act A not be performed. It's not possible for uh, my, act a, my act A not to be performed without God's not having been causing it. Like they go, to, they go together, if that makes sense. It makes sense, right? So um, that much is right. But um, if you ask the question, uh, could God have done otherwise? I, so I, he, let's say he brings about my act A, my meritorious act A. Could God have done otherwise than do that? On the extrinsic model, the answer would be yes, he could have done otherwise. And if he had done otherwise, then my performance of A would not have occurred. Suppose I, he doesn't bring about my act A and I don't perform A. You could ask, could God have brought about my performance of A? And the answer to that question would be yes. So because God is the cause of all being apart from himself, including my acts, and because whether I do A or not, you know, he could, he could have done otherwise and bring about my A or not bring about A, I think he has, he has providence there uh, over it, I would say. Now, how does all this relate to prayer? Um, there, I think God's, God can do things, including bringing about meritorious actions of people in response to prayers. So I might pray for my daughters uh, and, and, and God might give them not only antecedent grace, but this concurrent grace whereby he brings about their meritorious actions, uh, he might do that. He could do that in response to, to my prayers. Um, now, how we could talk about, I mean, maybe there's some tricky, trickiness, I don't know about how, how all that works out in the, the mechanics, so to speak, but, but I would want to say that. So, um, okay, yeah, so I think I saw yours first, so sorry. Um, I'm curious if uh, our ability as human beings to be a cause is as inherent to our own Yeah, I think he creates us with causal powers, uh, to br- ability to bring things about. And so that is inherent to our, our nature. OK, um, there's a, there are long stories to tell about the relationship between our causality and God's causality. But yeah, I think that that, that would answer your question. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks very much. Thank